0: You are listening to a unique and special production of the 110-250 Audio Studio.
1: What's this? A day bird? A yard bird? Who's the bird? Where is he?
0: Hello, Billy Jerome. Do you know that I can see? Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino series in conjunction with the 110-250 audio studio with bandmate John Sweetwood of the former Kansas City power pop band, The Daybirds. As a part of a larger mission to capture the essence, history, and bravado of the late 90s, early 2000s band, we get into quite a bit. From his current home base of Las Vegas, Nevada, we get into how he started playing music, meeting the guys, evolving in the band, the rise, the other moments, and all of it as he remembers. Dig his perspective.
1: So, let's start at the top here. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Man, you know,
2: I... I didn't know what the hell I wanted when I w- to be when I was a kid. You know what I mean? It's, it was. I was listless in that regard. I didn't have like some life objective that I was working toward, and I didn't always know this is what I wanted to be, which sucks because I was the kind of kid where everybody always told me, you could be anything you want to be, which sounded awesome, except I didn't know what the hell that was. And so it wasn't like I was especially a studious in school towards science because I wanted to be a such-and-such such or whatever. I always knew I could be anything. I just never really knew what the hell that was going to be, and I guess in some
1: ways I still don't. <laughs> so right now, for, for the sake of, and we'll get to this later on, you're in Las Vegas, but tell me where you're yeah. where, where you originally from.
2: I'm originally from Liberty, Missouri. I was born in Smithville Hospital back in 1976.
1: And, yeah, I was raised in Liberty, Missouri. Prior to getting into instruments, you know, or even coinciding with it, talk to me about your early baptismal into music.
2: Well, I mean, from a standpoint of, like, music we listened to, I know when we were kids, my folks listened to a lot of stuff, and the stuff that really always, the stuff that stuck with me that they listened to was, like, the Commodores, Lionel Richie, Isaac Hayes, like shit like that was the stuff that really stood out. And I mean, you know, th- being of the age, they listened to like all the, you know, 50s do off kind of shit that they liked. And then growing up on Liberty, you know, it's like everywhere you went, you heard, you know, jo- George Jones, Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, all of that just seemed to be everywhere. Every time you walked into a store, every time you went to a friend's house, so. For some reason, a lot of that old country always kind of stuck with me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I couldn't say that I ever called myself a quote-unquote fan of that stuff. But at the same time, I'll hear, like, a Merle Haggard song and be like, shit, I know every word of this song. You know what I mean? Like, through osmosis, it stuck with me, you know? And so those were sort of, like, my earliest, like, childhood age. Like, when I was a little, before I was buying my own music, that's the
1: kind of music that, in, that really stuck with me on your journey as a musician when did this begin when did you start picking up an instrument what was it and how did how did it all happen
2: uh well my brothers played all played instruments and so i mean that was there was always tons around us and all that kind of thing i remember being i want to say around high school age for some reason my folks had a piano in the basement and there was a song By Harry Connick Jr. called "Lofty's Road Soufflé," and I was like, "I want to, I want to figure out how to play this." And it was like just a little, a little instrumental melody ballad type of thing. And I was like, "I want to do this." So like, I sat down there and I was like listening to it and started playing it, and you listen, play, listen, play, and then I like I figured out how to play that song on the piano. And in doing so, I was like, "Hey, I like this." Me, that really wasn't very hard for me to like listen to something and figure out how to play it, and that was kind of honestly where I where I started. That was uh, the first thing I remember ever being like, "I'm gonna play this," and I did. I, I played saxophone in sixth grade band. I don't know if that truly
1: counts, but uh, you know what
2: I'm saying. I never played
1: an instrument like in school or anything after that. Yeah, it's a part of the lexicon. So, uh, you know, the one thing before you got on stage, you know, our early memories of of all of that come from what we saw personally. What was the first live show that you ever saw?
2: Dude, the first the
1: first live concert
2: I saw was David Lee Roth, the Eatem and Smile Tour. So that was like nineteen eighty five, I think, nineteen eighty five at Sandstone. Wow. And I and Cinderella opened for them. And actually, fun fact: at at that show, um, I remember I went with my buddy Jeremy Sila, and we were in 1985. I was in fifth grade, but I had skipped the grade, so I was only nine years old. And I remember as we're pouring out of sandstone, I am clutching on to like the back of his shirt or his dad's shirt or something like that for dear life. Granted, it was a big deal for my folks to actually let me go at nine years old to go to sandstone with, you know what I mean? And as we're walking out, I remember clear as day, this this drunk lady comes up and she goes, is this my face and puts her hand in my face and shoves me to the ground. And I break connection with him and I lose him and, and, and my whole party in the throng of people flooding out of sandstone. So I was like freaking out. I had found like an, a, a worker adult cop thing and I had to go back to the little booth there and they like called my mom and dad who of course were flipping out. And so they are driving out. Meanwhile, like Jeremy's, you know, people end up figuring out what happened and they come back and find me. And so it was, it was, it ended in absolute chaos. <laughs> so yeah, that, yeah wild. So I, that, and i think if it weren't for that that's that, you know who knows shit. maybe i saw something before that and i absolutely can't remember but that made that stick in my head like
1: like nothing. oh man that's wild yeah. so before the daybirds you were i believe from my memory you were an incarnation of the band called the courthouse project was was yeah. that true and was there was there anything before that or was that your first band No, that was the first time. Yeah. And you know, hell,
2: I I would barely call that a band. I mean, insofar as that we never like played shows, I don't think or anything like that, or maybe we did once. But yeah, that and that was basically me and Dean and like Jimmy Gabriel, Jeff Molenex. we would, um, we would just sit around and jam. And then we ended up going up to the courthouse steps and Liberty because at night, you know, that was kind of vacant. There was a a power outlet on one of the lampposts there. So we would like plug in my keyboard into that and we would jam uh, at the courthouse steps and people liked it and more people would come around and hang out with us and whatever. But yeah, that was the first time that was in that whatever era right after I'd left high school where, you know, this again, like I said, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to be. So it wasn't like I was driven to do a bunch of other shit. So we would hang out and jam.
1: So you got the taste of being in a band with that. So take that feeling of what it was like to be in a band and then merge that with how did you meet the guys in the day birth? How did that begin? Well, Dean, and I had met working at Liberty Hill country club. And so he and I were friends
2: through that. And like I said, he and I were playing together with Jimmy and Jeff and all of them for the courthouse project. Phil, I'd known Phil for a long time. Phil had played, uh, in bands, and like I said, my older brother, Matt, was in, was in bands, and, like, Phil, actually, you know what, I remember Phil used to come over to my house around Christmas time a lot because, like, my brother, Matt, Tim McKenna, my little brother, Jeff, and Phil would, like, play music together a lot, and I remember us having Christmas parties where Phil would be playing the drums and all that sort of stuff, and so he was, like, always around. I knew Phil, like, for a while through all of that. And I guess everybody just kind of friends and knew each other. And I I think Johnny knew Phil, I think through the whole kind of churchy world a little bit. Um, But the, I will say that like the idea that Phil and Johnny and Dean like started playing, I'm trying to remember the exact moment because I recall at one point, um, Dean was like, Hey, I'm going to go play with these guys. And I was like, well, why are you going to do that? And then, They were like, well, why don't you come play with me? Why don't we all go play with these guys? And then that just kind of happened. You know what I mean? It was like, all right, fine. I'll go play with these guys a couple days. And as we started jamming and realizing that that was a much better chemistry. And I don't know. I think maybe Jimmy was a little unhappy with that. But
1: that's kind of what happened. Talk to me a little bit about what those early practices were like. What the first song was? What the early days when you guys were like, all right. Or the Sky Kings, because that was the first incarnation. What was that like? I don't know if I remember
2: specifically like what songs we came up with first. I just I remember being in Phil's basement, and I remember that we even called it the beehive because we found some old foam that had a honeycomb pattern, and we put it all up around this like ten by ten room in an unfinished basement of his house, and that's where we played. And, you know, it was loud and knobby and all that sort of stuff. But I will say that we always, we clicked really well. You know what I mean? And that really helped. And I think a lot of it, too, like, you know, in a lot of ways, I will say just me and Johnny Yeager always really, you know, because he played drums maybe more than most and better than most uh, in the band. And I played bass and or keyboard most. And so, As a result of that, like, he and I really clicked, you know what I mean, from a playing point of view, and personally, but you know what I mean? Playing with Johnny made me be like, oh, shit, this is what it's like, you know what I mean? So, like, that's what I remember. I felt really satisfied in that this was, like, hitting. And, of course, everybody else was great. Phil's voice is outstanding. You know, Dean and I got along like thieves. So, I think that's what it was. It was just that feeling of, you know what, this is fun. This is what I want to be spending my time doing. And I think that was the feeling. And like I was saying before, I didn't really know what the hell I wanted to be in life, what I wanted to do. I kind of was a dilettante, bounced around. But then in that moment, I felt like, okay, this is
1: something that I feel like we're doing that's worth my time and attention. Obviously, when you get to that point where you know you got a nucleus, you want that first show, what was the first show like? How did you get it? Oh, man. Did anybody tell you what the first show was? What? What did Johnny say our first show was? Uh, Yeah, and and that's the best recollection that I got. Johnny said that you guys played on the uh, uh, square, and you had to branch it out to two shows because there were so many people there. Wait, where did he say it was? He said it was on the square uh, in Liberty. Was it? It was some coffee shop. What a coffee shop on the square in Liberty? I'm willing to take his word for it. I don't even know if I remember that. <laughs> I, I I I don't and he brought it up he was like you may not have even been there it was like something that was kind of shotgun and you guys were like alright let's do it and so many people showed up he said it was after a fall festival or it was around that time and you guys put flyers up all over the all over the square and a lot yeah. of people found out about it, and it turned into a big crowd, and you guys literally had to split it up into two sets because there were so many people. That
2: seems... I know that shit like that happened to
1: us, and so, I mean, I'm willing
2: to take his word for it that, that was our first show. Uh, my memories of our... Well, I have some memories... I mean, mind you, my memory is not great. Some of my memories of those early shows... <laughs> there, I remember... <laughs> let's see. There's... The, the two early shows that I remember, and I know these were by no means our first shows. I remember playing a show at a place called Governor Stumpy's down in Waldo. And I remember yeah. that because we had a, uh, we had um we started playing and the owner started screaming that we were too loud and he like kicked us off stage and we were like, screw this guy, but all of our shit's still yeah. on stage. And then we went back up like an hour or two later once like the dinner rush was over and we played again and he was like this is awesome you guys need to come back a little while we're like yeah you know what no <laughs> you're, you know you're kind of a dick and we would just but then the one actually i'll tell you a good one one that i remember most of like uh i remember that phil got us a show and there was this you know that church there's like a church um in midtown that in the basement they had like a music venue and it was um yeah. Phil knew. i can't remember what the hell it was called and still knew them because obviously his band before the daybirds he was in a christian band and so he had connections in that world he booked a show and we were like okay this is going to be great so we we go in there and this is actually you know what this is when we had first we'd made our recording of the sky kings record and so we had cds pressed for that for sale we're like okay this is a a good show we booked it through some legitimate means so we get up there, we play the show, it's us and we're opening for some Christian band called Tim Subtle and the Satellite Soul, I remember that. So we get up there, the place is packed, It's packed with our friends. I mean, probably a few hundred at least uh, kids in there. We play, they go crazy, they love it, a bunch of people buy our records, the place empties out to, uh, down to about a third left for Tim Subtle. So as the show ends, um, I remember going up. To the guy to get paid and he was like, Oh well, we've decided to donate the door to Chin Subtle to continue his ministry. And
0: and I remember oh, no.
2: me and me and Dean were like, uh here, it's kinda loud. Come talk to us over here about this. So there was this little game closet that we under the church, right, where it was like kind of like a big walk in closet room that was full of board games. So we walk in there with this guy, and we shut the door, and me and Dean stand with our backs to the door, right, on purpose. And so we're like, explain this to us again. And he was like, well, you guys are just getting your start, but he's out there spreading the word and blah, 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 blah. And in a nutshell, we were like, I don't think you understand, right? We brought these people in here. We made this shit happen. That is our money. You aren't giving it to anybody. We're not leaving here. Uh, without this money and he's like well that's not very Christian and that's not where and I, I don't give a shit you're not getting out of this room until we get our money and he was like you fucking and he did and he was like you'll never play here again and I was like I, I promise you that's not going to be a problem because we're never going to fucking play this shithole again period and that, <laughs> I think that was the first and last show that we had that Phil ever booked you know? <laughs> 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 or 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 yeah, exactly, Or put another way, it's like, Phil, if you've got to leave on a show, let's, let's circle the wagons on the money deal before we uh, drive anywhere.
1: Because, yeah. yeah but, but I remember that That's... one, man. That was some chicanery. <laughs> All of these stories I remember vaguely. So, you know, the one thing early on, when did you guys know you had the magic? When you guys, when did you feel like we, we got this? I mean, like, uh, in some regard,
2: like I was saying, like, pretty early when we were first, when we kind of first got together and started making music together, it just, it was just so easy. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. I mean, man, so much of life is hard. But when things come really easy and when those easy things are good and people respond to how much they like them, like, that's, that's an intoxicating feeling. You know what I mean? And so to just be in a situation where, you know, whatever. Johnny comes over to my place. We're sitting on the patio. We are just farting around and we come up with some riff and it's like, holy shit, that's a great riff. And then whoever's around us is like, oh my God, that's great. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, that little dopamine push, you keep going for it. So I think we felt
1: that early on or else we probably wouldn't even, uh, led the momentum roll forward. So give me an idea of a timeline. I kind of did this with Johnny at one point. So you guys, from his recollection, met around 97. And I'm trying to stitch together the albums. So, you know, you had the Sky Kings EP, Turnstile, and then You Rock. So kind of give me, from your recollection, when you guys hooked up and kind of the album discography, so to speak. Well, let's see. We made that Sky Kings album in, I want to see, I think 97
2: makes sense. Um, We recorded the... The Turnstile album, uh, that was 1999. I'm almost sure of that. Uh, and then You Rock, I think that one came out in like 01. I think is is the way it works. Um, yeah, yeah, no. And we, you know, we recorded tons of stuff in between, but um, yeah, that's that's how it all laid out. But I think we probably started getting together around 96 is when we were. I would probably say the summer of 96 is when all of that first stuff kind of came down when it first started happening.
1: The Sky Kings, you guys were taking off. Things were going good. You get a letter in the mail. Some countries act as name the same thing. Talk to me about that transition from the cease and desist to the birth of the named day birds. See, now I can't remember specifically if
2: it was a, a cease and desist. If somebody said that, that could be the case. I also knew that there was yeah, you know what? You're right. There was some reason. There was some reason for that shit. You're right. Um, I remember us looking for a name, and as far as my memory served, I want to say the Dean was looking in a book, just sort of, like, looking around, and there was a couple sentences, and the word day, and then the word bird was on the next line, kind of right up and, up and down from each other, and he just kind of glanced at it and saw day and then bird underneath it. And just was like, oh, what about paybirds? And of the things we were kind of talking about, we're like, yeah, that'll work. You know what I mean? Um, So not not, not incredibly, I guess, meaningful or the meaning got backfilled to it or whatever. But uh, yeah, that was, if I'm not that, but so far as I know, that's the truth. I know that uh, Dean came up with it. I believe he came up with it by reading it like that. And we were like, yeah, that'll work.
1: So as the band went on, you guys obviously evolved into your roles. You got better and more comfortable with each other. When would you say, because and you guys were really hitting the circuit hard here in Kansas City, going out on the road, when would you say you were at the height of your powers as a band, really like songwriting, touring, everything was clicking. You guys were like, holy shit.
2: Yeah, I would say that was around maybe like 2001-ish. It was probably 01, 02, I remember... That is, that's about the time where we would go out on the road and we would like consistently fill clubs everywhere we went. We would have, you know, that would be like, okay, this weekend we're going to go play Chicago Friday night and Saturday night. We would play a club like, um, you know, like Shuba's or something like that. Um, And it would be our show, right? Like we're the headliner of the show two nights, right, so fill the club both nights for us, maybe on the way up, hit, like, some, like, University of North Iowa or something like that, then the next weekend, oh, let's go then up to Milwaukee, through Milwaukee, then the next weekend, up through Omaha, the next weekend, down through, like, Columbia, St. Louis, and you can just do these big loops out from Kansas City where you're playing very consistently, like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and it's your show every night, you're the headliner every night. The house is full every night, and then additionally, be playing some you know even bigger shows here and there. Whether it's opening for somebody that's you know quite large, or and then you know I think around that time too, like we played, um, we played Spirit Fest, and we were like the last support before uh, Huey Lewis, right? So like we shared a trailer with Huey Lewis, and when you're on the stage at Spirit Fest, there's like. Twenty thousand people or more out there in front. You know what I mean? And like day on the hill in Lawrence with you know seven thousand people and playing these shows like that, where it's not like, oh, we're the first band on. We went on at, at three in the afternoon. It's like no, no. It's it's after dark. We're one of the last few bands to play these big shows. Uh, that was cool, you know. And then, you know, college shows up around places like that. So that that's where it became when you, we started playing shows where it was consistently several hundred to thousands of people, you know, on the reg.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. You know, and then that obviously is a precursor to, and here comes in Dennis Rodriguez. And I'm curious, uh-huh. you know how how did that relationship build and become? something bigger and bigger with him. What was that relationship like? Well, I'm
2: sure that Cato told you probably about, you know, how Dennis came into the came into yeah. the world, right? Yeah. So Yeah, yeah. I always yeah, I always liked Dennis a lot. i gonna I, mean, I still like Dennis a lot. I just haven't talked to him in a long time. Dennis was always a uh kind of a, a voice of wisdom and you know, he understood he at the very least understood the world as it was. You know what I mean? Now, granted, that didn't necessarily take into account the world that it turned into, you know, because the model with which Dennis really made sense was like the old records and radios model, right? Like the idea that you release a single and you distribute that single through, um, you know, radio stations. And, you know, the, the methodology by which bands became popular in the '90s uh, and early 2000s is very different from like the 2000s on, in the era of social media and the era of streaming services and everything that's come after that, right? So, in that sense, our relationship with him and the goal that we were trying to achieve was very much based on that sort of old model. And obviously, the Celine Dion agency were huge players in that, right? And so, it was a, it was a, it was a choice. It was a decision to say that, like, okay here is an approach by which we can achieve success. And ultimately part of what caused it to fail was that, you know, the problem with that model is that very few people have concentrated power, you know what I mean? And so basically at the end of the day, if one guy is like, nope, we're not picking up that project, you've lost a lot, right? And which, you know, compare that to like, you know, whatever, like a Billie Eilish or somebody today, who, you know, in this environment of 2022 or whatever, develops a music career, it's different. You know what I mean? They have, they have different strengths. They have different uh, means to different ends that just didn't exist. I mean, shit. Back then, it was still, we were right on the cusp of, you could reasonably record a good album in uh, through relatively inexpensive means, but you still had to produce the shitload of actual physical media to sell, Right. People don't think about that, but if you start a band today, A, you you know, Billie Eilish, I mentioned her again. I mean, she recorded her first album on a MacBook in her brother's bedroom, right? And then all the distribution is digital. Back, you know, whatever it was 20 years ago, you had to go into an actual studio. You had to book studio time, and at the end of the day, you had to come out of pocket, frankly, couple grand at minimum to physically print the merchandise that you have to buck around and sell, you know? That's what i mean about the old method and the new method and the old method was very heavily capital intensive and in order for us to engage in a capital intensive uh realm we needed somebody like dennis and by extension celine dion and them to help us make that happen because of just the era we were in i realize i ended
1: that question quite a ways i think maybe from where it started No, 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 no. That's good. No, that's good. You, no, you, you nailed it. So let me, let me, let me leapfrog a little bit here and ask you, you know, you guys went to Montreal, you guys went to LA, you guys went to Vegas. What were those Uh trips like? How much growth happened during those trips? I mean, there are, those are some, those are some truly amazing experiences.
2: And I mean, that was just, it really felt good to be, it felt great to feel like you were who you were in your skin in that moment. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't feel like I was playing or pretending. And I mean it like this. How many times do you know somebody that's like, I'm in a band? Okay, you're in a band, but what are you really? It's like, oh, well, I'm actually an accountant. Me and my buddies play music, and then every Thursday night we do an open mic. Okay, that's, you know, that's one thing. But that's that's not the same thing as like, oh, I'm an athlete. Well, what does that mean? I play soccer with my buddies on Thursday nights after work. No, you have a uniform. You have a paycheck. You are on a a team with fans in the crowd. Now you're an athlete, you know? And so I think those experiences felt genuine in that regard. Because, man, when you are in a recording studio in some faraway place, and that is what you're getting paid to do, and you are getting, you know, whatever. It's like, it, it just it felt so real and it felt so good and there's so many experiences from those like little snapshots that I will absolutely never forget and here here I'll point out a couple you know keep them in cut them out of the fi- whatever but I'll tell tell you a couple of what I mean one day when we were in Montreal we had to do piano stuff right uh, so when we when when we were tracking the piano we had one studio called um, Divan Vert, I think it was, or Studio Piccolo, something like this, is where we were recording. And so we did a lot of our vocals there. We did our guitars there, whatever. But when it came time to do the piano tracks, we went to a different studio. Now, the studio that we went to for that was the largest recording space in Montreal. It was a huge brick room. And brick sounds weird, but this is where they have re- recorded like huge like choral vocal performances and stuff like that. And I guess Celine had recorded many of her records there. So we go to this place and we go there and it's absolutely it's stunning inside there. It's so cool. And there is a, a fucking, there is a 10 foot Steinway concert grand in the middle of this room with this guy who's tuning it, right? For me. You know what I mean? That was an outstanding, just, it just, I don't know, gave me goosebumps. Like here I am, like who the hell am I? But I'm walking into this room. It's the biggest room in the city. It's absolutely beautiful. This outstanding instrument sitting in the middle of this room that has all been expertly mic'd. And now, 20 minutes before I play it, this old man is over there tuning it, so it's perfect. You know what I mean? Like, that just just hit me. And then when I went out there, they're like, test the thing. And I'm like, yeah, I was just playing the shit out of that piano, hitting it like crazy. It just, it sounded so good. It felt so good. It felt just an amazing moment to be in. And one other one, back at that other studio, I remember at one point we were tracking some guitar stuff. And, well, I was tracking one of my guitar parts. So in Montreal, like, at least on the east side, it's, like, kind of old school. Like, that's the French side of town, where, like, nothing is, none of the buildings are taller than the church spires, you know? So the the studio had these sort of long, uh, windows like the kind of short uh, but long horizontally, so I'm looking out over the eastern side of Montreal, and there's like a light snow falling. So it's like the, all these old buildings and church spires and a light snow falling, and I've got my cans on and I'm tracking my guitar part, just staring out this window, you know, like it just I, I'm to this day I can see that snapshot perfectly in my head of just, you know, that's that's what I did. Just whatever. Tuesday afternoon, John goes to work. What you doing? Standing here, looking at this absolutely outstanding scene, recording my guitar line.
1: It just felt amazing. Yeah, dream realized, dude, totally. Yeah, for sure, um, for sure. Well, yeah, and, and so well, let, me, let me get to the point, the part, because Montreal is a part of this. When you all were on a conference call, you guys were obviously all, in this place where you're ready for the next step. And what what happened? What do you remember from that moment? And how did everything kind of progress after that happened? Well, if you're talking about,
2: like, the, well, the death knell, as it were, basically it came down to the, the agency had X amount of resources that, you know, they were devoting to new projects or whatever. And obviously Dennis had us. And it all appeared that it was a go. Renee liked it. Renee being Renee Angelou, Celine Dion's husband, he who was a you know the boss, and like he was on board. Everything was great. And apparently, someone else within that organization had gotten to Renee, gotten in his ear because this guy had like a female pop artist that he was developing. Right. So this guy has a female pop artist. Dennis has this band. Us, and then I'm sure others. So for whatever reason, guy with the with the girl singer essentially convinced Renee that look, we shouldn't waste our time and energy on this rock band because that's outside of our strength, right? Celine, girl pop, it all makes sense. Put our resources behind my project, forget Dennis's project, right? So that's so the guy was successful. Renee was like, "You're right. Okay, fine. We're going with your project." Dennis is, is not there anymore. And there you go. So that was a crush to momentum. Now, obviously, there's other factors as well, which is like, okay, well, so what? So why did that make mean that the band had to go away? Well, in the lead up to that, we all had our sights set on the idea that, okay, this is the next step. We have all this stuff we've been working on, all these songs that we were in progress. The next step is that we're going... Back into the studio, probably back up to Montreal, and we're gonna cut this album, and it's gonna get released on like a big label. however, uh, so okay, so then, in the lead up to that, though, um, I think the kind of the rift that formed in the band was the desire not to go out on the road anymore. And I know that this Dean was especially um, was especially of this mindset where. I don't know, for whatever reason, where he was in his life. Like, the idea of playing all of these shows didn't really appeal to him as much. He wanted to, like, be in the studio. I think that was the side of it that he really enjoyed, you know what I mean? Like, he liked the idea of being a craftsman in the studio, et cetera. And, you know, to the extent that that mindset carried the day, we didn't go on the road for a long time. Like, for the last little while, we hardly played shows, Because we were at, actually we were at John Evans' house doing the finals on on all of these tracks that we were going to record. And my opinion was that I I didn't like that. I thought it was foolhardy to come off the road because I knew it was going to kill our momentum. Because I was like, look guys, if something goes awry with this deal, we have put ourselves in a terrible spot. Right? Because we're going to have to like rebuild. My attitude is why lose any ground? Let's keep going on this front. And I think a lot of them were just, we don't want to, you know, and granted, I'm sure their reasons were good and valid to them. So no fault as it may. But then as a result, once it came out that it was like, yeah, this deal fell through. So it's like, well, this deal fell through and we're sitting here with nothing. We haven't played in a long time. You know what I mean, like uh we it just it's like our momentum had all dried up, and it just didn't feel i don't know it felt it felt bad, it felt like this isn't you know we really shot ourselves in the foot and i I mean, hell, I'm sure I had a lot to do with us, ultimately breaking up because it was like you know to some extent, I'm sure it was like Fuck, if you would have listened to me, you know what I mean, but then you know if you didn't listen to me. such an important thing then what's the point moving forward right because because then what you know so
1: well yeah and, and that leads me right into my next question because you had mentioned being with john evans and recording and john had already talked to me about that so there was this period after the decision where you all had to regroup which you've kind of elaborated on but there was phil came out of the band john evans came in talk to me about that transition and how that phase of the band worked, I'm trying to remember how what i can't what I can't tell you
2: release without yeah, what I can't tell you is like okay, Phil left the band around x date, and then John was with us for x number of whatever it was, month to year plus, and you know, but it's something like that, but you know towards the end of it there. My recollection of all of it was that Phil was becoming sort of increasingly erratic. Um, you know, like I, God, I, you know, I love Phil, but you know, and he and he'll I'm sure will be the first to tell you that he can be like a real kind of scattered guy, and that just became untenable because I mean, when you're in a band, it's like you're married to three other dudes. You know what I mean? Truly. So you're in this relationship that is like it's it's more than just being a friend because now you have a lot invested in each other, right? Like emotionally, financially, your future, all of that. And I think that, like, we all kind of reached a point to where it just Phil wasn't really on the same trajectory. And, you know, I guess in his defense, like, as the band was coming to an end, we were all sort of had different mindsets and different trajectories and and all this sort of thing. But it just kind of reached a point where Phil just, you know, he would be unreliable. It wouldn't show up the shit, you know, he wouldn't be on time. It would be, you know what I mean? And it was just like, ugh, you know, we, we can't get, we can't keep going like this. And, you know, John had been, you know, recording us for a long time. Uh, you know, he was in other bands around town, you know, we all, we all knew each other really well. Uh, he, you know, he brought his own thing to the table. He could sing, he could play a lot of instruments, you know, so that was great. And yeah, I mean, John's a great dude. And so, you know, when he came into the band, it definitely, um, you know, it was different. It wasn't, it wasn't different bad or different good. You know what I mean? It was like, well, not doing it. How should I say that? he brought his own thing into the band and his own thing was great. So I think collectively added to what we were doing, but there again, you know, John was also of that ilk of like, yeah, you know, this is the, this is the recipe here. We need to, we need to focus on this pre-recording and this album deal and all of these kinds of things. And, um, and, you know, he was obviously a part of the camp that voted for that to happen. I honestly think if I had to guess, Johnny was probably in the middle. Dean and John definitely didn't want to be out on the road and wanted to just worry about recordings and that sort of stuff. I wanted to be out on the road. Johnny was kind of in the middle. And I'm sure that a lot of that has to do with, like, you know, I was fortunate. I was working out of the Kitahara's photography studio at the time. So, like, I was able to earn enough money to, um, you know, whatever, keep my apartment and all that sort of stuff with minimal effort. It wasn't like I had to show up to a day job every day of the week. And I could appreciate that for, you know, Dean and John Evans. Like, it was probably a lot harder to be in a band and say, okay, yeah, the money we're making is mostly getting reinvested. I mean, the way it worked is we reinvested the money the band made. And then, of course, it would pay for, like, our per diems and our life while we were on the road. So it didn't cost us any extra to be in the band. And it stabilized itself but the band didn't necessarily make enough money to also cover all of our rents and expenses and, you know, daylights. And so I get that that shit costs money. So I get that those guys were probably the mindset that, Oh, we can't, you know, we're going to have to either record deal or bust here. You know what I mean? And I didn't think that that was, you know, where we were at, but
1: yeah. No, 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 no. no. That's it. That's, that's getting to the methodology of it. No, that's perfect. So let's get to the, what was the last meeting? What was the time that you guys said, I think we all need to move on and, and go on with our lives?
2: I honestly can't even say. I know the last,
1: the last most
2: distinct memory of all of that I have was that house that I lived over, off of, over by UMKC um, and talking with Dennis on the porch about it. Um, and then from that point forward fuck man honestly I don't know Uh, I wonder if the other guys have a better memory of it I don't really even necessarily remember having some like last meeting with the band I I can't even remember our mindset were we all mad at each other were we
1: all just sad right well I, I haven't gotten a definitive from anybody I've gotten more of the feeling of what was going on at that time I think it was more of it wasn't about like if you're reading a book. It's not about about the timeline. It's more about the theme. Like what was the feeling? What was because everybody was obviously at a point you know where it was it was time to move on um, from what you were doing. So um, yeah. well, actually, you know that's yeah. an interesting way to look at it, right? Because, and I think that's fair to say
2: that like you don't like I can't like um, here's an example. Like, I can't tell you with any certainty the last time I ate a taco. I'm sure it was in the past month or so. But when I was eating that, when I was eating that taco, I was like, I need to remember this as the last taco I eat. It doesn't work like that, right? It's just, you just haven't done it since, right? So with the band, I'm sure that at some point we were just like, alright guys, we'll listen. Alright, we're not going to meet up this week, we'll just talk about it later. You know what I mean? And then later drags on. It's like, what are we going to do? Uh, you know what I mean? I don't know. I'll deal with it. We'll we'll get to that.
1: You know what I mean? And the next thing you know, you're, you've gone farther down that road. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. And that's kind of what I'm going for. And that's what I'm kind of, about my general feelings then. But, you know, if you condense and take everything that we've talked about with the band's history, we've gone from the very beginning to the very end at this point. If you lean back in the easy chair and just think about the legacy of the Daybirds, what do you think about? What, what do you think the legacy of the Daybirds is?
2: I think that we were, um, I think we were of the wrong time. I think we were, un, we were, we were in the wrong time. And, it, and I mean that in, in both good and bad. I think that part of what made people enjoy us is that what we found what how we sounded was you know it, it, it didn't it wasn't really it, it wasn't what everything else sounded like at the time you know there was it was good music with all the harmonies and the way that we wrote music was like in one sense it was reminiscent of whether it's old 60s music or whatever but on the other hand it was very much you know more modern and complex than whatever, like the strokes or whatever was out and happening at the time. So in that sense, we didn't really sound like everything else that was happening. Right? So in that sense we were not of the right time. And then and then like I said uh, like I alluded to before, like our band came into being at a very unusual time in the in the world of the entertainment industry. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in retrospect, like, I mean, hell, if I had a crystal ball, I mean, of course, everybody would think that, right? If only I had a crystal ball. I could go back in time. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, I can see where some of my instincts um, were accurate, where some of them weren't. And I think that that's just it. We were in a weird time. We were, our music didn't match the time in a way that was good because people enjoyed it because it didn't sound like everything else but it was bad because it wasn't as immediately marketable in well-developed channels. And because of the timing, well-developed channels is all that existed. The opportunity to sort of create it yourself was just beginning, but not quite there. You know, the, and so that was weird. It was like, man, I would have, I would have loved to say, well, instead of being a band from 19, whatever, 97 to 19, or to 2006, like, man, if it was 2007
1: to 2016, you know, it would have been different. You know, we've all become the Ben Folds lyric where we've all grown up and we've all gone separate ways. We're becoming the older men. But when you think back to that time, what do you miss the most? When you think Daybirds, what's the thing that you miss the most immediately? Shit, I don't know. (laughs) I mean,
2: because I don't, I mean, I don't miss it. You know what I mean? Like I I don't, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It was, it was a very great time of my life and I'm grateful for it. I mean, shit, let's put it this way. I mean, I I remember like Dean and I were, would, would spend so much time together. And I remember one of the last times I talked to him on the reg was that like, we both kind of were like, Hey, you know what, man, I've already spent more than a lifetime with you. You know what I mean? Like, like think about your friend, right, an average listener. Like, think about how much time you spend with your best friend, right? Well, when you were in a band together with that person, you are, you know, it is time God knows how much, right? You're day in, day out, every single day. You see that person so damn much. And same goes for all those guys. We were just together for so much that we spent we spent 30 years together in those, whatever, eight, nine years. So yeah. I don't regret it because we had very full, and I don't, I don't miss them, and I don't, you know, whenever I see any of those guys, it's like, hey, we're right back at it, you know what I mean? Like they're always, they will always and forever be a part of my life. I don't miss anything about. Well, uh, I do. I mean, I like playing shows. Playing shows is super fun. I like being on stage. But there again, I mean, I have every opportunity in the world to be on a stage now, and I don't take it because again, I felt fulfilled by that experience. So I missed the missed opportunity. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I, I, if I had, if the one thing that bugs me is, like I said, everything, and I keep kind of bringing up those things where I keep alluding to the timing being wrong and the nature of the I And mean, like I said, I've, I've been in the entertainment industry ever since this whole time, right? So I understand it with a hell of a lot more clarity now than I did when I was twenty-one. So you know that that's that's the thing that. I, I I quote unquote miss. I miss what I missed from not knowing, but you know, such as youth.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. So let's say, let's say, a month from now, you get a phone call, random phone call. You're not sure who it's from. You pick it up, and someone says, "I want you guys. I want the daybirds to get on stage again." What are you going to say to them? Well, I've gotten called like that before, and
2: <laughs> my answer is no. You know, it's what's done is done.
1: Let me ask you this. With that door being closed, what about the music catalog? Have you ever thought about getting, because at this point right now, because of where you were at pre-digital and all of that, have you thought about getting something together to cement that audio legacy of the Daybirds, Sky Kings, so people can pick and pluck at it whenever they want? Yeah, uh as a matter of fact, I um <laughs>
2: I was going to put it all on Spotify um not long ago. Uh I had a friend who was going to be able to help me do it to bypass just some of the expense and all of that and that opportunity is no longer right in front of me. I I figure I will at some point. I figure that I'll when I get around to it. Um, yeah, because I mean, like I said, I would put it on Spotify or some shit like that, because obviously, you know, let whoever wants to listen to it, stream it, and listen to it. Not because I feel like, oh, it's going to be monetized for some great amount of money, but, but yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I just, um, there's just a degree of hassle to getting it set up, and I want to, uh, yeah, I, I would rather just hand it, turn it over to somebody and be like, here's what you do. And then also, too, there is some kind of missing pieces, right? Like, I have, I have like physical copies of the albums, I think tucked in my closet in my office here. And then there was a bunch of recordings like from when we were in Vegas, there's recordings from John Evans, like there is a variety of recordings and they are not necessarily all together, you know? So I think whenever I get, whenever I get thinking about that, I'm like, hey, all right, well, I wanna do this. But first let me get it all together. But then I kind of like, uh i don't don't have the time or energy to get it all together and then that idea gets moved along and then also i'm just a busy man in general so i don't necessarily have a ton of time to do that
1: speaking of so let's take that line that pencil line and move it down the line right now we kind of mentioned you're in the entertainment industry you're in vegas tell me what you're doing right now and do you play music what's going on in your world
2: i am a promoter right now uh the company is called Bender Presents, and the main thing that we do is a festival called the Big Blues Bender, which is like, a, essentially like a resort takeover. So we'll take like a, a Las Vegas resort, and, you know, we'll take the stages that exist, plus we'll construct other stages, whether they be in indoor stages, out by pool decks, and we'll, uh, you know, get by us a oh, oh, shitload of hotel rooms and we'll sell it as a package, right? Like, um, you know, come here, pay X amount, hotel room for four days, this big festival going on. And so for, the, for this company, we do that. We had a bluegrass one before COVID, which is, has yet to come back, but we hope will come soon. And for that, I am the president and COO of this company that uh, puts on these events. And prior to that, the last, shit, 15 years, I was doing something similar, uh, down in the Caribbean for, uh, mostly in conjunction with a company called Cloud9 with things like Jam Cruise and other big events with, you know, Widespread Panic, you name it, or similarly, like the whole hotel, vacation, um, buyout, all-inclusive entertainment, concert experience. Like, th- that's basically what I've been doing. Ever since the end of the daybirds, so I spent when the daybirds ended. I kind of piddled around doing some stuff for a couple of years, and then for maybe the next fifteen years, I spent doing that down and around, you know, the Caribbean. And then about five years ago, I moved out here to essentially run this company in Vegas that does a, you know, that, that does events along that platform. So that's it's what done. I do all day. If I was 20 years old today, you know what I mean, and trying to make a name for myself in the, in the music business um, as an artist, like, you know what I mean? It's different. Like I, I, It's so much, I mean, I don't know if it's better or well. Let's put it this way. There's more opportunity for more people. I remember oh, yeah. even doing all those years in the Caribbean with these bands. A lot of them were in the jam scene, you know what I mean? And here is, I think, the main difference. I have worked with a lot of bands where it's like, okay, these are the kind of bands where the individual members of the band will probably, at the end of the year, see somewhere between whatever sixty and one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year a piece for like four guys or whatever, right? So that's great. You know what I mean? That's a great, great life for a musician. Blah blah blah. The old way was that, okay, as a musician, you're either broke or you're making 600 grand a year, plus, plus, plus. You know what I'm saying? So in that sense, the way the modern world works is there's a lot more opportunity. It's also a lot less likely, you know what I mean? There are fewer, you know, big stars, you know, if you think about less people are going to walk out of there with like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, but more people are going to walk out of there with a good life and a good wage. And that just has to do with how things are monetized, how, you know, how opportunity is distributed these days. And that is, you know, like I said, I would have loved that reality. Uh, you know, I would have loved the reality where it's like, yeah, hey, I'm a touring musician. I make whatever, you know, I make a good, good, comfortable living. And this is my life being out on the road. But you know what, in the late nineties it wasn't you know, that was a lot more rare. It was a lot easier it was more like, Hey, everybody's like everybody buy your lottery ticket, you know, if if you are but not even a lottery that's fair. Not even a lottery that's necessarily decided by the ticket holders. It's like, Oh, if the people in the suits decide that they can make money off of you, this is gonna go somewhere. And you know what? It worked until it didn't. So what do you do?
1: That's it. And that's, that's the part of the story and the narrative too. It's all about timing. You know, you guys would have never known at the time, but I know how hard you guys were pushing on MP3 to get, you know, one of your songs to get enough hits. So you guys were on the cusp of that, but who knows, you know, I even posed that to Dennis, you know, and he's like, yeah, I mean, you could say things would be different during this age, but it's still a perfect storm, no matter what you are, whatever you're doing, that one thing is not going to be it. It has to be all this shit. And we're, we're old enough men to have seen enough to know that. That's there's there's not yeah. gonna be a magic bullet theory. So Well um, and and that and that which by the way, that again
2: is part of why I think when it ended, I know that for my sake when I when I knew I was done was because like I I would I would put it squarely on the decision to basically stop touring and just go into the studio. Because, like I said, in my mind, the idea was you've got to be, you know, you've got to be hitting on all of these cylinders. You've got to be, um, you've got, you have to diversify your attack. Because if you put it all into one basket like that, where it's like, okay, now we're gambling our entire future on this decision to go cut the record in this timeline. And then when that fell through, that's part of why I was like, well, shit, you know, this isn't going to. This isn't gonna help. This isn't gonna. This isn't gonna end right.
1: Yeah. No, I get it. And that's the interesting thing that I'm I'm, that, that I see here is that everybody has everybody has their they 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 all everybody has a plan. Everybody has a different way, and that's the reason why it's hard to keep bands together. Everybody has their own way of how things are gonna work out, and the successful bands find a way to get through that and it's not that unsuccessful bands don't, it's just that especially with bands and artists, you have have powerful personalities and they all have to coexist together you know, yeah. and it's not that one idea is wrong and one idea is right, like you've already mentioned. It's that what, what mix of the ideas are going to work and you don't have a fucking manual that's going to say this shit's going to work, this isn't going to work. You have to do what's best for you. And obviously, like you were saying, you had a different work situation than the other guys did. So many fucking factors go into that, yeah. you know, but in well, the, the day, yeah. exactly you did the fucking best that you guys could with the possibility of almost getting to that fucking point. Sure. And you know, and it's like, and that's the thing where it's like, I'm not embarrassed about
2: it. I don't feel like we failed. Um, But then, you know, again, you also see, it's like, you know, people, there's the thing you notice where in America, all it's more often common that, uh, that uh, an individual is a band where I mean, I have to say, it's like, you know, you think American music, right? That's like, Elvis Presley, you know, Bruce Springsteen, like there's a singularity to it as opposed to like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, you know, or is yeah. it like Michael Jackson? Like there maybe sometimes a bit of a reason for that, right? Where for whatever reason, uh, for whatever reason in America, um, it kind of needs to be a single person's vision and decision. You know what I mean for it to happen yeah. because and I don't. And I don't know why. I don't know if somebody can unpack that. Whether it's the socioeconomics of our country, whether it's its size, who knows why. But for whatever yeah. reason, like part partially, like in those days, none of us could have just said, "This is how we're doing it, guys." You know what I mean. There wasn't. So yeah. even though I felt like I knew what was best, and I'm sure everybody else felt like they knew. what was yeah. You know what I mean? But it wasn't like by fiat one person's the same. But, you know, truth truth be told, at least in this country, the ability to make those decisions unilaterally make it easier to succeed.
1: Johnny, I, this was awesome, dude. So, more to come. Thanks, uh, Johnny. i to you yeah, later.
0: Yep, later. Thanks for tuning in to another Famous Interview with Joe D'Amino, brought to you by the 110250 Audio Studio, where we give you a fresh and comprehensive insight into the finest musicians in the world. Thanks to John Sweetwood for his full story. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe D'Amino channel on both iTunes and Spotify. Swing by the Neon Jazz channel on YouTube. And for all things relatable or forgotten, jump over to JoeDomino.com. Until next time, enjoy the music out there. A day bird? A yacht bird? Who's the bird? Where is he?